I, I am Manish Rath, and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Uh, we are coming out of Washington, D.C. at the Keller and Heckman Studios, and I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Javanay Nakumaram, whom many of you as participants of the OSHA 3030 have had uh, the pleasure of, of participating with in some of her prior programs. Javanay, welcome, and thank you for participating. Thank you for having me, Manish. And I'm also joined by Larry Halperin here at Keller and Heckman. Larry, as many of you know, is one of the deans of OSHA law anywhere in the country. And uh, I think it's safe to say that his experience is uh, a real benefit to the OSHA 3030 and its participants. So, Larry, thank you very much for joining us today at the OSHA 3030. Thank you, Maj. Pleasure to be here. So, Larry and Javane, we have a great topic today. Uh, the topic is a recent review commission decision, uh, and it did a good job of outlining the varying elements of proof that OSHA has to go through. We've covered some of this to a certain extent in the last uh, OSHA 3030, and that was relating to the general duty clause, some of you may recollect, and all of our prior OSHA 3030 slides can be found on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. And if you get a chance, you might want to check some of those out. We've covered some great topics covering a range of standards and procedural issues and rulemakings. And what we try and do is cover the most impactful recent developments in OSHA law. And by impactful, I mean the kinds of things that will maybe promulgate changes in how you uh, engage your compliance programs at your organizations. So with that said, what we're going to cover today uh, the topics that we're going to discuss today are the elements of an OSHA citation and what the agency has to prove in order to st establish a violation of the standard. And then we're going to get into some of the facts in a recent review commission decision. Uh, it really came out of a administrative law judge decision uh, involving Walmart uh, Stores East. And uh, the Review Commission's administrative law judge does a good job of outlining the elements that OSHA had to meet and establish in order to prove a citation and some of the defenses that Walmart Stores East uh, had raised. And we think this is a pretty good, what I'd call, anatomy of uh, citation enforcement or defense. And then finally, as we always do, we're going to wrap up with a discussion of what employers should do in light of uh, this decision. So with that said, let's start with the elements that OSHA must prove in order to establish a violation of a standard. Any standard that they issue a citation on, uh, the elements in general are essentially the same. And they've, they've been established in case after case. So there's a, a pretty uh, well-established jurisprudence on, this, uh, on these four what I'd call prima facie elements of an OSHA citation that OSHA has to make. Uh, the first is any time OSHA brings a citation, it has to establish that, uh, and let me back up and say that the first time uh, thing that OSHA has to prove when they want to prove up a citation is if it is a alleged violation of a standard, then they have to prove that the standard itself applies. A standard has a scope of applicability, and there are some activities or circumstances that do not fit within the scope of applicability of a standard. When I talk to employers, I often find 
that this is a step that's overlooked, and we really ought to. It's one of the best defenses, if in fact it fits, is to try and argue that the standard doesn't apply to the circumstance or the activity. The second element that OSHA has to establish is that there was the standard that applied and that the employer or the circumstance was not in compliance with the terms of that standard, with the specific requirements of that standard. Javane? Oh, and then um, the other very important uh, aspect of the uh, elements of proof is knowledge on the part of the employer, so knowledge of noncompliance with the condition. And so this knowledge can be either actual knowledge of a supervisor or, um, you know, somebody with authority over employees, or it could be constructive knowledge, meaning that the employer could have discovered the violation with the exercise of reasonable diligence. And that last element, Javan, is something you and I talked about at the last OSHA 3030, the idea that constructive knowledge is is the idea that the employer not only uh, knew about something, but even if they did know about it, they could have discovered a alleged violation through the exercise of reasonable diligence. Larry, the fourth element is the idea that uh, there is uh, exposure to a violative condition. We didn't talk about that in order because I think that that's a really important def uh, uh, defense as well as a uh, prima facie element that OSHA has to establish. Mm -hmm. Well, we picked this case because I think it, it presents all the elements, and it also is, although some people may not recognize it, it's practical and probably applies to almost every employer of any decent size. If you've got employees in a facility, the possibility that you're simply going to say, well, we'll call 911 and that's all we're going to do is, is not really what I would consider humane or realistic. Uh, that's not what employees are expecting. And if you've got a store and you've got customers and employees, again, the idea that you would simply, as a store manager, this is not what Walmart does, just the idea that you would simply call 911 and leave somebody lying on the floor bleeding isn't realistic. So the problem is, in this scenario, whether you know there's exposure or not, whether the standard applies, um, is going to be dictated by policy of a company rather than simply the law. Right. So, so what I wanted to talk about about exposure to a violative condition is one of the best defenses an employer can can raise is an attack on that point that even if there was a violative condition, even if the employer knew about it, and even if a standard applied. Uh, I think that it is a bona fide uh, avenue of defense for the employer to assert that, nevertheless, this was an area where there were no workers exposed. And so so this doesn't constitute a violation of the uh, alleged uh, violation of the standard. And so, so it's important to examine all of the facts relating to employee exposure when the violative condition occurred, whether or not employees were around, interview employees to find out whether or not there were, for example, if it was a piece of equipment in a violative state, uh, in an otherwise violative state, whether or not they were using the equipment or whether it was shut down, cordoned off, things like that. The other thing I wanted to talk about, Javane, when you discussed uh, knowledge, because I think that's a really important uh, avenue of attack for employers, is, uh, and we've talked about this at the OSHA, in prior OSHA's 3030, is that uh, when you get to a supervisory level high up enough within an organization, there is a third type of knowledge other than actual and constructive knowledge, and that's a knowledge that's just imputed to the employer automatically because the person who knew is high up enough. In other words, 
it's a, it's a classic legal concept of respondeat superior, where if a subordinate employee knew about something, that's not the same as the employer knowing about uh, an alleged violative condition. However, when a supervisor is high up enough in the chain and has a certain authority to uh, detect, monitor, understand, and abate a uh, alleged risk uh, or hazard, then, then that would be imputed to the employer. And I think that's an important concept to take cognizance of as well. Uh, the only other things that we'll talk about right now to sort of set a level uh, off of which we get a better understanding of this Walmart case is uh, is that OSHA had alleged a serious citation and a repeat, and serious citations are, is a classification of citations that are appropriate when the standard, when the facts suggest that uh, a um, condition is likely to result in a serious physical harm, and a repeat can be issued by the agency if an alleged violation is uh, an allegation of the same or substantially similar uh, violative condition or a violation of the alleged violation of the same or substantially similar requirement under the standard by that employer any time in the prior five years. Uh, so, so I wanted to go over the basics to get a better understanding of the decision. And uh, for, with that, let's go ahead and talk about Secretary versus Walmart Stores East. So this is a case that came out of a uh, distribution warehouse in central Florida, a little bit north of Gainesville, Florida. And, and these are huge distribution centers that Walmart runs, this one uh, north of Gainesville. And Walmart has uh, a volunteer team that it assembles as essentially uh, first responders. They are what Walmart calls a serious injury response team, or CERT, S-I-R-T. And I call them volunteers only because they're volunteering for this extra duty, but they are employees. They are associates of Walmart Stores East. And they, in addition to whatever duty they have as uh, distribution center employees, they also are volunteering to serve when needed or when called upon as part of the injury response team. Uh, conceptually, these volunteers uh, provide first aid or provide first aid in an emergency until an actual emergency crew can arrive. Uh, so so these, this program calls for, at this particular Central Florida facility, it calls for no more than 25 employees to serve as part of the team. And at any one time, they want at least two employees on duty as volunteers or on call, I should say, as uh, volunteer CERT members or, or serious injury response team members. So with that said, uh, I guess the other important fact is when you look at uh, the kinds of events or incidents that these CERT team members have responded to, uh, they have been things like uh, cuts or uh, contusions or people getting their foot or other uh, extremities pinched between machinery, things like that. Uh, an overhead door fell on uh, uh, an employee who was walking under and uh, I think scalped him, uh, so there was blood involved there. So Walmart Stores East had a bloodborne pathogens program that involved training and it also involved uh, it also involved the opportunity for team members to 
get shots, protective shots uh, relating to the potential exposure to hepatitis B and get hepatitis B vaccine shots amongst other, amongst other shots as well. That's right, Manish. Um, so under Walmart's policies, they want to be consistent with OSHA's bloodborne pathogens uh, standards. So they, uh, for their employees who start, they offer, they're supposed to offer vaccination series for employees uh, who start within 10 days of their assignment. They also, for employees who uh, accept or they, they would like to have the vaccination, they have uh, a schedule that they're supposed to follow in terms of administering doses. There are supposed to be three doses administered for the vaccination at zero, one, and six months to cert volunteers. And so, uh, and also uh, Walmart, they have an audit system where they're supposed to uh, ensure that these uh, standards are being complied with. Uh, and for all of their employees, they give bloodborne pathogen training to them. And so not only Walmart supervisory staff, but the Walmart employees should all be very well aware of the requirements under the bloodborne pathogen standard, and they know how to uh, respond uh, in, in these – they know how to make sure that their employees are protected from potential exposure. Larry, this third dose is critical? No, according to CDC, it effectively works as a booster. So the first two are fairly effective, and the third one is a booster, which seems to be something that would be more likely to be beneficial years in the future, but not necessarily do anything significant to protect the employee's health during the short term. So, and the Review Commission even noted that the first two shots, uh, vaccines, uh, provide the majority of the protection, at least in the short term, and the third gives marginal improvement of protection in the short term. But, Larry, right. you're, you're suggesting that over the long period of time, those who had three shots have uh, markedly better protection than those who only had two. There has to be somewhat better protection because, in a sense, CDC recommended it, and they were considered recommending the best medical practice. We did look at the CDC guidelines because of the abatement issue that would come up, right. and CDC basically said if you miss the third dose, for example, you can give it later. There's no need to restart the series, for example. So they apparently viewed the, uh, the remedy to be simply to give the third dose whenever that particular time came to, be, to pass, even if it was years after it should have been given. So it comes to pass that OSHA conducted an inspection at the site. That's right, Manish. So um, OSHA, they they conducted a complaint inspection of the facility, and they issued two citations that uh, were via alleged violations of OSHA's bloodborne pathogen standard. So these uh, mostly relate to the hepatitis B vaccinations. So OSHA found that, first of all, that four certain members were not receiving the hepatitis B vaccination in, uh, in a series in accordance with the CDC recommendations, meaning that their third and final dose was given uh, at a later time than what CDC recommends. CDC recommends five months between the second and third dose, but in this case, these four, uh, these four CERT volunteers didn't receive their third dose until almost two years, some of them almost two years later. One of them, th three of them were about a year. A year, nine so, months or yeah, so. Yeah. 
and uh, and it's important to note that the third dose wasn't wasn't given until after the OSHA inspection, so it's hard to know if they would have even received it at all unless OSHA came in. Yeah, we do get the impression that the OSHA inspection brought it to Walmart Stores East's attention. Absolutely. And then the uh, second violation that OSHA discovered was that about eight of certs uh, of the cert volunteers were not offered the vaccination at all within 10 days uh, of their assignment. And so they, uh, both of these requirements are part of Walmart's policy and they are, more importantly, they're part of the OSHA's bloodborne pathogen standard. And so OSHA issued uh, two citations in which Walmart contested here in this case. And it's really the first one that I think, based on time considerations and the issues that came up that we'll talk about today, so when you look at the walking through those elements of proof that we discussed earlier today, Chavanay, the administrative law judge took one at a time and applied them to the facts as we've just described them. Right. So the first, uh, obviously the first thing to look at was whether or not the standard applied. So in this case, of course, the, san the standard does apply because it applies to all occupational exposures to blood or other potentially infectious materials. So here, the CERT volunteers' duties did include providing first aid and emergency situations, so contact with blood is something that is reasonably anticipated. And as you noted, Manish, there were several uh, testimonials from employees who actually did say that they, they have been exposed to blood in responding to some emergencies. And Larry Halpern, I think this is an important point because Jovene says, of course, but in fact, Walmart did contest this point. Uh, and OSHA presented testimony from associates saying, yeah, maybe twice in the past year or four times in the past year I've seen blood or been exposed to, potentially exposed to blood. Uh, so I, I don't think that there's anything of a matter of course as to whether the bloodborne pathogen standard applies. Walmart was willing to argue at least that the, the possibility that the bloodborne pathogen standard applied was, uh, was debatable. Well, when you're faced with a citation, you zealously represent the client and you try to demonstrate why the standard doesn't apply and go through all the elements. And in this case, you know, they made that effort and on the other side, the solicitor's office probably came through obviously well enough and said, Walmart's got a plan. That's an indication they think they're subject to the standard. They had I'm a volunteer who identified four cases where there was some serious bleeding and they presented the CERT form, the standard form used at the site, and there's an entry for bleeding control. So the judge basically put all those things together, looked at the nature of the operations and said, there's industrial equipment, there's doors, there's overhead doors, there's box cutters. Those particular pieces of equipment have been involved in at least four incidents identified by a member of the CERT as resulting in bleeding incidents. So based on that, the judge said, yes, the standard applies. So basically the coverage and the exposure issue become the same issue. So, Javane, the second element uh, was, was their noncompliance with the standard. As you already mentioned, they found four employees who did not receive that third titer or booster and eight who hadn't been provided the opportunity to get vaccines within 10 days of entering the search team. That's correct. And uh, the the uh, supervisors at Walmart even admit to this. So they admit that they know that their employees didn't get their third dose. Uh, so the next element is whether or not 
those knowledge, I suppose? Or? Uh, the, well, first, uh, the, the court looked at whether or not the employees were exposed to, to a violative condition. And as Larry talked about, there were instances where these CERT volunteers did have exposure to blood while on the job. And so now this now the court looks at knowledge, whether or not the employer had knowledge of the violative condition. And the answer to that is yes, and they admit to this. Uh, both the supervisor of the CERT team knew about it, as well as Walmart's asset protection manager. Uh, they they were aware of these violations, but there was no no disciplinary action taken and no corrective action taken. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, the the administrative law judge said that because the supervisor, who was responsible for the I think the search team, and as, in addition, as you say, another supervisor who was responsible for asset protection and was responsible for auditing bloodborne pathogen program compliance at Walmart Stores East. Uh, both knew about this, that that was knowledge that's imputed to the company itself because they both were supervisory and had the power to to take some kind of remedial measures. So so in addition, uh, I believe because that asset protection manager had conducted an audit and the supervisor, Keith Hall, who was the supervisor of the search team, uh, when identifying those problems, admitted the problem to the asset protection manager, uh, they had a conversation about it and said, all right, we'll go ahead and take care of it. Uh, and I think that that conversation also gets to gets to knowledge. And I don't think there's a real great opportunity for Walmart stores east to uh, try and evade the knowledge elements at this stage. Mm-hmm. Well, what were any of their other defenses? Certainly they attacked the elements, as we've discussed, Walmart Stores East also raised the defense that they said, look, OSHA is going to the bloodborne pathogen standard, but the standard itself, the language, says that you shall comply with the CDC uh, guidelines. But the guidelines from the CDC uh, talk about recommendations. And so Walmart Stores East made the defense, well, you're requiring us to follow the guidelines, and the guidelines only recommend certain things. For example, that third tighter or booster shot, uh, and that that third tighter has to be done on a particular schedule is non-mandatory. So if we're following the CDC guidelines uh, and there's an element that is recommended or non-mandatory and we didn't follow it precisely to the prescription CDC issued, then we are nevertheless following the CDC guidelines because it was non-mandatory. I think that that's a a common sense argument that, that sort of resonates, that OSHA is trying to require you to follow a guideline and the guideline gives you a suggestion so you can follow the suggestion or not and still have followed the guideline. I think that's the plain English summary of Walmart Store East's arguments. Larry Halpern? That, you're accurate. I mean, that was this, basically the sense that if somebody incorporates into a mandatory standard or recommendation, then it should be treated like a should rather than a shall. And uh, the judge didn't accept that, um, and I think it was clear that that was never OSHA's intent, and Walmart's program basically followed the OSHA mandate and the CDC guidelines, and it was simply a matter of, we've got to try to come up with some defense against this, and this is one they they came up with, but it it really doesn't fly. Okay. Well, second pitch, let's see if they uh, make a connection. Their second defense is 
look, this was unpreventable employee misconduct. Even if there was a non-compliance circumstance, we we trained everyone how to do this properly. And if somebody didn't do it properly, what can we do? That's the unpreventable employee misconduct defense. But the defense, it's well established, requires that the employer establish four elements. One, that there was a that it had implemented its own internal rule. Two, that it communicated or trained its staff on the rule. Three, that it continued to monitor effectively to make sure people are complying or to catch noncompliance. And then uh, finally, that if the employer ever found instances of noncompliance, that it has a record of having disciplined those instances of noncompliance. Uh, it is on this fourth element that employers have most often tripped up. All OSHA has to do is point to instances where there was noncompliance that the employer knew about and didn't discipline. Uh, I find that this is the most troublesome for employers when somebody violates a rule and gets seriously hurt. Employers are the most reluctant to discipline an employee who's been seriously hurt by his own noncompliance. It seems like rubbing salt in a person's wounds, figuratively. And so uh, oftentimes employers have a poor record of showing this last element, that they enforced the rule through discipline. Larry, has that been your experience as well? This this was a little different. This was a situation, I mean, you're right about that. This was a situation where somebody had an audit. The audit wasn't broad enough to cover vaccinations, and the person who was being audited volunteered, by the way, we're not really up to speed on our vaccinations. And given the fact that it was apparently voluntarily disclosed, it appears that Walmart decided that discipline wasn't really appropriate. They they asserted there was some, but when you asked anybody involved in the incident, they couldn't see any adverse impact of any effect on this particular individual. So they said, okay, the judge concluded there really was no monitoring and no discipline for noncompliance. And that was the end of the, the ability to make that argument. That, that's an important point, Larry, you're raising. The conversation between the asset manager who conducted the audit and the CERT team manager, the CERT team manager responded, no, we didn't do these third booster shots for four employees. And the asset manager replied, all right, well, we'll let's go ahead and get it done. Walmart Stores East, through counsel, later argued, yeah, that was a violation and, we and it, the employee was disciplined for it. And when both the asset manager and the CERT team manager were put on the stand, they both said, no, I wasn't really disciplined. We just had a conversation about identifying the problem and what we needed to do to correct it. So the testimony of those employees really um, was a uh, poignard and uh, hoisted Walmart Stores East upon it. What they should have done through counsel ha is carefully interview uh, those two employees to make sure that their legal theory was properly tested before they ran it in a hearing. Uh, and I think that that would have saved them unnecessary effort in, in raising an argument that just didn't present well at the hearing. And that's a really critical step for counsel uh, to always try and take. Uh, the other points that, that uh, Walmart raised were, well, you know, this really should be a de minimis violation. The administrative law judge didn't really buy that because that only applies to instances where there's no uh, risk of a injury or illness. It's, it, in plain English, I'd say this is appropriate for paperwork or record-keeping type violations. And then finally, there's this collateral duty exemption, which OSHA created as a matter of discretion, which basically says if your primary duty is 
let's say, working in the warehouse, and this is collateral to it, and you have other procedures in place, and you respond to the person generally at the location of the injury, then OSHA wouldn't cite an employer for not having provided the vaccines prior to the exposure. So you got two things backwards here. One is OSHA citing somebody for not giving the third shot, but apparently would let them off the hook if they simply didn't give any of them, which is crazy. And then on the other hand, the judge said this exemption doesn't apply because most of the first aid was given in the cert room rather than actually where the person was, let's say, laying on the floor, um, which again makes no sense to have an exemption dependent on how you respond in treating an individual. The basis should be what the best medical approach is for the individual and taking care of that individual. And taking care of that individual might work better in a cert room. That's where it should happen. So we've got some some decisions here which seem contrary to good public policy, but you should keep them in mind if you're ever planning on asserting this exemption. The judge apparently wasn't too thrilled with it. OSHA decided basically as a matter of discretion not to apply an exemption that actually did apply, and the judge wasn't going to force OSHA to apply it. That's kind of a very strange circumstance. So I think that's a fair point. Let's talk about what employers should do in light of this decision. Um, and I think there's some elements generally that, of, of what employers should do that go to defending citations, which is why we're here today. But I also think that there's some that go to the specific uh, substantive issues in this case relating to the bloodborne pathogen standard. And I think the first one is to come up with a list of tasks as comprehensive as you can make them to deal with uh, exposure to blood in the workplace for uh, responders. And I think one of the most important things we talked about at the beginning of this program is when you talk about the first prima facie element, which is the scope of applicability of a standard, that the, that Walmart Stores East found itself in this situation only because it developed this uh, special response team. Right. It did. And I think because most sparkly large employers care about their employees or customers in a store and feel a need to do something on an interim basis to provide first aid while the eventual, if necessary, outside responder shows up to provide whatever additional aid or medical attention is required. And simply letting somebody lie on a floor is not going to be good from the standpoint of employee relations, public relations, or the uh, ongoing business surviving, actually. But what if an employer did not have a response team? If an employer doesn't have a response team, OSHA is going to come in if they're doing their job, and they'll say, are you manager expected to respond? And if the answer is no, OSHA says, okay, uh, and, and of course, they, they don't respond. Uh, if the manager says, yes, we're expected to respond, OSHA is going to say, well, where's your bloodborne pathogens program? Right, and this is an important point, because if you don't have a response team and you're not, and you've instructed everyone not to respond but to seek uh, outside emergency response, then then this element of the standard does not apply. And I could go a little further. Maybe some people would be offended, but that's the kind of thing that causes people to organize. Yeah, that's a fair point. So what about the person responsible for janitorial cleanup after an event where blood might be on the floor or on equipment? I think in the office environment, 
the normal OSHA approach would be that is so incidental and rare that the standard doesn't apply as a matter of interpretation. But if you get into a situation where it's part of a, a business in, a, let's say, a residential area, a large residential development, or um, a, an industrial environment, then different story. Well, I think that, that you're right, 100%, if, if you don't have a, a response team. If you do have a response team, you've clearly anticipated the possibility of blood. Mm -hmm. And I think that the janitorial team or the employees who are charged with cleanup uh, are arguably part of the cohort that should be trained mm -hmm. and should be uh, given these vaccinations and to take precautionary measures like personal protective equipment. Is that a safe statement? Yes, I, I, for sure. So the bottom line is you have to really decide what you're going to do, and assuming you're going to act in a generally humane manner with respect to response in an area where you've got industrial equipment as, or even box cutters on a regular basis, the reality of it is you, you're going to need to comply with this standard. I think the other lesson to learn from this case is when you talk about standards, OSHA standards that – Cite to third-party recommendations like the CDC guidelines that they they become mandatory if the requirement in the standard is that you shall follow these guidelines, then those guidelines are now standard. Uh, and I think that that applies to a, a number of standards, but this one in particular uh, seems to be particularly vexatious or uh, perhaps confusing for uh, the managers at Walmart Stores East Distribution Center. The idea was that OSHA for once acknowledged it wasn't really the expert on something that supposedly CDC was. So in effect, they've incorporated by reference whatever the CDC guidelines happen to be. The CDC guidelines could change. Um, then a court would say, well, they're just incorporating the language that was there before, so the standard hasn't been amended, so you can't challenge it in a court of appeals. You, you might go to a, at the enforcement proceeding and say it's inappropriate for there to be a major change in a requirement through incorporation by reference that hasn't gone through rulemaking, but, and that's an issue for a future day. One of the other things that we were talking about, the three of us, was uh, the, the idea that the audit was imperfect because it only looked at whether or not the, the search team manager answered the auditor, his internal auditor, by saying, oh, yeah, we, we look at uh, whether or not the audit is, consists of an examination of acknowledgement forms that people have received the training for the Bloodborne Pathogens program at Walmart Stores East. It doesn't look at whether or not everyone has gotten all of their follow-up boosters, uh, vaccine boosters. And so uh, I think it's critical that when you develop an audit program that it be structured and that it cover uh, an inquiry into all of the elements of a standard that supplied your uh, internal program uh, with the elements of its program. So, so when you develop a uh, internal program to comply with an OSHA standard, that's the time probably that's the best time to write out your audit inquiries and hand those over to your internal audit team. Uh, we did get a question which I think would be worth responding to. You know, there's the issue about whether you're required to have a first aid team. That's really, in some cases, a separate issue. As a matter of policy of a corporation. If you're going to say, well, I don't need a first aid team because we've got somebody within five minutes, what you're essentially saying is you'll let somebody lie on the floor potentially bleeding for five minutes while the first aid team maybe makes it to them. Um, if you can't find people who are qualified to provide first aid, I, I, that's probably the reality, but certainly in, in most places there's an expectation of immediate response 
to a situation. Um, and finally, the repeat citation was a $25,000 fine. I think we should make everybody aware of that. So one of the things to think about is not creating a corporation with a huge number of units or operating sites and trying to break them up in some logical way to try to reduce the potential for repeat violations. I think the other thing I wanted to talk about is what we've already spoken about, which is the importance of being consistent in applying disciplinary um, measures when there's noncompliance. If you, if you for any reason decide that you're not going to discipline, you are also making a decision that the unpreventable employee misconduct defense is one that you're just not interested in ever using. But I would quibble here with the administrative law judge and his analysis in this particular case. I don't think that this was a disciplinary issue. Uh, when the CERT team manager identified the omission for those four employees had not, who had not received their third booster, I think that that is a performance problem and not a disciplinary problem. And I just wouldn't have rationally seen discipline as the appropriate employer response in this circumstance. You would say maybe I will grade him uh, differently on his performance evaluation, but you wouldn't think that this is a disciplinary kind of measure. Indeed, he was the inheritor of his uh, predecessor, a search team manager, during whose watch these titers should have been administered, these booster shots should have been administered. And then this new manager comes on board and discovers the error or omission. And it hardly seems rational to have disciplined him for discovering a problem that occurred during his predecessor's watch. So, so I think the ALJ made way too much or misapplied this last concept. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's important for employers to be very conscientious about discipline and performance. And I look forward to seeing a case where a performance evaluation is inserted as a substitute in this fourth element about discipline in the unpreventable employee misconduct uh, case. Well, we've gone a little bit over time, so I will leave it at that. I will say that for OSHA issues, you can catch us not only here on the OSHA 3030 about every 30 days, but also on Twitter at Rathmonish. We republish this particular webinar as a podcast. This podcast will probably be available tomorrow or the next day. But if you subscribe on your favorite podcast to the OSHA 3030, then it will just get downloaded automatically, uh, as it does on my phone. Uh, we also post information on our LinkedIn web pages, both for Monish Rath as well as for the practice group's LinkedIn page uh, called, can we go back to, uh, called the Calvin Heckman Workplace Safety and Health uh, page. Uh, the next OSHA 3030 is going to be in about 30 days, Wednesday, October 25th, mark your calendars. Uh, spread the good words to two or three others involved in safety and health, either as in-house counsel or safety uh, and health professionals. When you get this invitation for the OSHA 3030, please forward it on to two or three others uh, so that we can keep this program going. And, uh, and until then, I hope we, uh, we get a chance to answer any of your questions. You're welcome to contact us by email or by, uh, by telephone, and we'll see you again in one month. Until then, stay safe.